Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. My guest today is global thought leader on women living a childless life, Jody Day. Jody is the British founder of Gateway Women, the global friendship and support network for childless women with a social reach of over 2 million. From her arduous journey, Jody carries heart healing wisdom for all of us, and I'm so grateful to share this invigorating conversation with you. The gift of grief is truly the pearl of great price that we all are invited to behold. And with that, I give you the very lovely and the oh so wise Jody Day. Jody Day, I read your book and tell me about your story. Yeah, so I'm 56 and a half now. <laughs> uh, and um, I, I chuckle a bit because when you're younger, particularly when you're still hopeful of having children, those halves are really important. And then they get less important again when you move past your fertility window, whatever that might be. And it's going to vary for each of us. But those years when I was longing, craving to have a child, a biological child. Um, it started within my marriage. Interestingly, I didn't grow up wanting to have a child. I actually had a pretty strong idea when I was growing up that I didn't want to get married and have children. But I recognized later that that had a lot to do, that was actually a response to my own mother's unhappiness. And also being, um, you know, being mothered by someone who was still dealing with the un unhealed wounds of our own childhood so you know it wasn't a great experience for either of us you know mother or daughter so I think my young consciousness way was well I'm just not going to do any of it and it wasn't until I got a bit older and I met the man who became my then husband and even then I said to him I don't think I want to have children he went okay that was that was the, the big conversation that's as much as we discussed and then a few years later you know I was 29 uh, and we got married when I was 26 I kind of had understood that actually children weren't going to be my childhood. It was a chance to do something differently and maybe even heal some wounds. And that those children would be, you know, the combined product of my husband's and my DNA and wouldn't that be amazing? And I went, I kind of think maybe I do want to have children. And he was like, okay, you know? So, <laughs> and those two conversations, those are enough to derail a lot of relationships, but we were, didn't, I don't know, we were very young. We, were, we didn't think things through very clearly. And so I tried to get pregnant and I was unable to conceive. Now that really surprised me because I had been pregnant at 20 and I'd had a termination. So this was before I met my husband because I got pregnant and I was absolutely terrified because uh, what my mother had told me, what my school had told me, what the culture had told me was having a child is going to ruin your life. You know, it's like all your opportunities will be gone. And I was just, I just thought as the child of a very young mum, who was the child of a very young mum, I grew up with that narrative around me of all the things I could have done with my life if I hadn't had you. <laughs> it's like, so I was like, you know, I'm 20 and it's just about to kind of kick off again. I thought, so I, you know, I had that abortion and I thought, well, um, you know, everything works. And so when I still wasn't, didn't conceive by the time of 33, so I've been trying for nearly four years, I had an operation to check that everything was okay. 
Um, and actually the, you know, the gynecologist who did the operation talked to me afterwards and said, you know, absolutely first class uterus, finest oh. uterus I've seen all week. You lovely young people. Your you uterus is the model for everyone. Respect. Yeah, I know. It was like, that was it. That was the fertility advice. That was all I got. Um, and so I struggled with something called unexplained infertility, which is the medical terminology for we don't know. You know, um, my then husband was seemed to be fine. I seemed to be fine. Uh, but I, I was never able to conceive. So the years, you know, truck on through our 30s. Uh, we are a pair of kind of uh, interior designers doing really well. It was his business that I had gave up my business. Uh, I was in I was in technology PR. I probably would be on a yacht now if I hadn't closed down that company because I was one of the few women in technology PR a long time ago. And um, I thought, well, I'll give up what I do and I'll put my brand building and everything efforts into my husband's business because in a couple of years time, I'll be pregnant. And then his business will be the one that supports us as a family. So it makes sense for me to put my efforts there. And then I didn't get pregnant. So nearly a decade later, I'm still doing a job which, yeah, I can do it, but I'm, I'm not into it particularly. Um, and my then husband, his, um, his charisma and artistic ability had sort of spiraled into the dark side of kind of, you know, workaholism followed by alcoholism, followed by addiction. So we were in a mess, you know, with the infertility, the addiction, I had the nice little matching set of codependency. So we, we were in a real mess. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I was the daughter of, you know, I came from a family full of sort of substance abuse. So I did that thing that I, you know, I didn't become an alcoholic, but I married one. It's a, so when our marriage broke down when I was 38, and you know, that was my, my kind of, I, it happened because I had what Brene Brown famously calls a nervous breakdown slash spiritual awakening, which, uh, yeah, which literally rocketed me out of my marriage. I, I, I realized later because I was not spiritual at all at that time, that actually what I had fits a kind of textbook definition of something uh, called a, a spontaneous Kundalini awakening. So it was a very, very physical, very spiritual, full on experience. It was like, it was like control or delete on the soul. Yes. <laughs> it, it started as, um, it started with me starting to lose my temper in the office with someone who, yet someone else who was going on maternity leave that I had to pay for because it was our business. And I could feel myself starting to lose my temper, which is not like me. And I thought I need to get out. So I, I kind of rushed out of the office. I was on my way home in, in the car and I had this sudden desire to kind of just turn the wheel of the car really fast, just put it underneath the truck. And I was like, what, what is going on? Got into the house, sort of leant against the front door, like what is going on? And yeah, and I, the, the, what felt like, and then my office manager rang me about my behavior in the office, which she called me on and I lost it. I lost my temper. I had this feeling of heat actually in my buttocks, like my buttocks, like I was sitting on a fire. And then this incredible sensation went up my spine, through my body, and left the top of my head. 
And it was as if basically the top of my skull had come off and there was white light leaving my skull going straight up to infinity at about a billion miles an hour. Yeah. And as I was in this, I remember having this moment when I thought, I'm, I've lost my mind. And oh shit, I've lost my mind. And then I had this image of what looked like a walnut. It was tiny. And I was in that walnut, in this huge stream of energy that was leaving my body, this tiny walnut in the, in the sort of stream of energy. And I thought, but I'm in here and I'm okay. But I, want, I, I wonder if anyone will ever know that I'm in here. And then I, I think I probably lost consciousness because I came to, I was alone in the house. So I don't know exactly, but maybe it was about 15 minutes and I found myself on the floor. And as I came to, I actually didn't know what the floor was what was up, what was down. Really, it was, I think, as kind of close to a rebirth as you can get as an adult, because I didn't really, I felt like I was seeing the floor for the first time, seeing my hands for the first time. So I, uh, I was, um, I called my then husband, he came home, my mum came around, and actually I did go to a psychiatric unit because no one else really knew what to do with me. And as I sort of healed from, from that experience, really what I just needed was rest. There was, there was nothing wrong. I was just, it was like I'd just blown an enormous fuse. I came back into my life and it was like, it was like waking up again in your own life, middle-aged and going, who the hell made all these decisions? Having a completely fresh pair of eyes on your own life and having a chance to choose to do things differently and having a new awakening. That was when my HSP tendencies, my highly sensitive person tendencies started to really become aware. And really all of the feelings that I'd repressed since a very young girl growing up in an unsafe environment, if you imagine they all came back online simultaneously. So it was the most massive reset, but also a huge challenge because I had to learn how to be this new version of myself. So six weeks later, my marriage is over and I'm living a new version. Wow. Yeah. Powerful. It did. It, it, was, it was protecting me. And when I look at what a walnut looks like, it looks almost like a human brain, which is interesting. But the image I had in my mind was actually more from one of the films that I'd loved when I was a teenager, which was, I don't know about... Um, people being injected into the bloodstream and being really tiny and going around the human body in a little submarine. Mm. <laughs> um, it was, uh, it was like an adventure story. I felt like oh, that. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Do the you remember bus. the one? Is that the, was that the school bus, right? That I, I goes know, into I'm the just, human body or something? But you're, you're tiny, you're in the bloodstream yeah, and you're right. traveling around. And I felt like that. But when I fell together at a later date, so that, that's the piece in my book when I realized I was definitely going to be childless. That's a few years later, I'm 44. But what happened sort of between 38 and 44 is I had all of the old programming from my life to kind of, that was still running, but I also had all of this new awareness about my life that I was trying to make sense of. And I was desperately looking for teachers, for wisdom, for guides, for therapists, someone who could help me to make sense of 
you know, and I was looking at Buddhism, I was looking at meditation, I was looking at yoga, I was looking at anything that seemed to have a system to help me understand the fact that I now had um, kind of these incredible perceptions and awarenesses. And I realized I'd been like that as a kid, but I suppressed them. And I'd also suppressed them in my marriage. I'd made some I'd made some conscious and unconscious decisions early in my relationship with my husband. I met him when I was 21, where I actually suppressed a lot of who I was in order to make the relationship work. You know, I'd grown up in an unhappy home. I really wanted to have a happy marriage. I put a lot of myself, I parked a lot of myself out of view. I put some of my gold into my shadow as well as, you know, as well as some of the darkness. I just thought, no, these bits don't fit. If I want to be loved, these bits don't fit. And some of those bits actually, when they started to come back, I had to build a new relationship with them. So my, I suppose I had a you know, pretty, uh, pretty dramatic midlife breakthrough, um, led me towards becoming, you know, training to become a therapist. Um, and I think gave me an intense curiosity about human process and I realized I'd always been fascinated by those things by philosophy by process by by mysticism by personal growth and it was as if suddenly I had permission like okay you're not going to have the 2.2 kids and and the cute artist husband and live this slightly bohemian slightly rakish London life you know there's there's a whole there's a whole other plan for you I don't know what it is mm -hmm. but it's deep Wow. And I went deep. Wow. Like, what was the moment when you started to feel like, you know what? Yes, I am going to step off the ledge here and start being vulnerable. Mm. Can you talk about that? Yes. The vulnerability of doing that was driven by desperation. I, so I probably started realizing that I wasn't going to meet someone else and do IVF or ART and, and it was going to work, you know, I, that, throughout my sort of 40 to 44, I was going through this process of going, okay, this probably isn't going to work out. And then when I got to sort of 44 and a half and I, okay, this is definitely game over for me. I shifted my conversation with people I was trying to talk to instead of, uh, and so instead of it being about what am I going to do if this doesn't work out? You know, I'm, I'm, I so badly want to be a mother. It's not happening. It, it shifted to, I'm definitely not going to be a mother. I'm, I'm really trying to work out what that means for me. And, and nobody would let me talk about it. Nobody. It, I would get bingoed. Um, oh, you're still so young. Oh, maybe you could have one of your own. Oh, have you thought of this? Oh, have you tried adoption? Oh, really, kids aren't all they're cracked up to be. Oh, you can sleep in and travel. Just like all of this stuff started coming at me and I realized that nobody would let me talk about the thing I was trying to talk about, which I didn't have a word for it yet. Wow. It was my grief. You bring up that term bingo. Expound on that. Like, what is a bingo in this context? Um, I, don't know if, I don't know if bingo is a game that you play in America, but in... Right. So you have a certain number of kind of numbers you have to get to win. So uh, I borrowed the phrase initially from the child-free community, which is those, those women and men who've decided not to have children. 
child-free bingo, they get a slightly different selection of phrases. One of theirs is, you know, um, who's going to take care of you when you're old, or you'll regret this one day, or you'll change your mind. If you're childless, not by choice, um, it's more around what you can do to make sure you can still have a child. So it's, it's either discounting your pain, um, oh, it's not really that bad, why don't you have one of mine, children aren't all they're cracked up to be, oh, you dodged a bullet there, um, or it's about things you can do to make it happen. Have you thought of adoption, fostering? Like, uh, no, of course not. Um, you can have one of your own. Uh, well, not, that's not for everyone. And actually also, what do you do? Just order it on Amazon? I mean, it's, it's amazing the things people will say that they have no awareness of what they're saying. Um, and on a really bad day, you can kind of get a full house, which is why we call it bingo. And these comments can come from people who know you really well, who know everything you've been through, and people at the bus stop. The amount of prurient interest in your uterus as a woman is quite extraordinary. It's like your uterus is public property. I mean, you see it actually with pregnant women. When suddenly their body becomes public property and complete strangers will start asking them, oh, can I touch? And when are you expecting? You know, there, so there is it's very strange. It's like, what happened to me being a private person? I was just reading through the greatest hits of those bingos. Like, oh, I read this article or you can always adopt, like you said. And I've got three kids. You can have one of mine. But you saw that people didn't want to talk about it because they don't want to deal with your pain or more rooted, they don't want to face their pain. Do you think that's a common denominator? It's absolutely. I unconsciously, I mean, what is empathy? Empathy is when we actually feel someone else's feelings and we allow ourselves to step into them and we connect with them because we, we, we say, I'm going to share this feeling with you and feel it. Well, when we feel someone's grief, what that triggers is our own ungrieved losses. And we all carry so many ungrieved losses because we live in a grief phobic society. So as well as the kind of, I don't really know quite what to say to this woman awkwardness, there's also this, oh, we're gonna talk about, and, it's, and it can be very unconscious because these comments can come from people that are otherwise, can be very sensitive people. These comments can come from therapists. You know, it is a real big bro pronatalist blind spot, but it's, you're not allowed to talk about it. And actually I, I asked um, St. Brene about this uh, when she gave a talk in London a few years ago, like, why do you get shut down? Why do you basically get shamed when you try to talk about this? And she referred to a, um, a piece of research she'd done. And when she got all the coding back from her research, she noticed that everyone who'd, who'd struggled with infertility talked about their stories in the past tense. And she thought perhaps it was an error in her coding and she went back to them and found out that every single one of them wasn't able to talk about it when it was happening to them they could only talk about it in the past tense because they'd had to deal with it. And Brene Brown said that infertility and childlessness in her research is the number one area of human empathy failure. So I also like to say to people when I tell them that, um, you know, women who are struggling, I promise it's not just your friends and family. This is a big, big issue we struggle with. I think that childlessness as well as having very modern connotations, I think it has very deep tribal roots. The fear of the childless woman, the fear of childlessness. 
you know, it, it probably comes from a, a very deep time when we needed to have lots of children for our family to survive, for our tribe to survive. You know, childlessness was a curse. And I think that lives on in our, in our kind of collective unconscious. So we've got, there's so many elements to why uh, childlessness is still something that people really, really struggle to inhabit, really, really struggle to accept and kind of circling back to when you opened our conversation about difference. I think that perhaps the difficulty with difference is perhaps at the root of all of the social problems we are dealing with. All of them. Our, our inability to tolerate it, to speak across it, to be curious about it, to be accepting of it. It's, it's at the root of all of our problems. Yeah. What brought you back to say, you know what, I'm not ready to let go of hope because I have something to say and there are people that are desperate and hungry and ready for the wisdom that I have gleaned from going through this loss and valid pain. Um, well, thank you for, you know, for calling it wisdom. Um, it's uh, healed wounds. I don't think there was really a, a moment that I decided. I mean, this is Gateway Women's 10th anniversary year this year. It started as a blog, um, me just typing into the void. I had been trying to have these conversations with friends and family for a couple of years, and I simply had not been able to get anyone to listen to stuff I was thinking about, about my childlessness and what it meant. And starting to think about the social and the cultural and the historical and all of the things that were kind of coming to me about, this is not just me, there are layers and layers and layers to what I'm experiencing. So I started a blog thinking, well, maybe one person will read it. And this, the day after my first blog was published, I got my first piece of PR. About six weeks later, I gave my first talk. There was a journalist in the audience at that talk I mean, there were only eight people in the audience. One was a journalist. She interviewed me for an article that then went into The Guardian that kind of went viral. I mean, it's still being read and shared now, uh, you know, almost a decade later. And what happened was women from all over the world started commenting on my blog with these incredibly powerful words, which have been used in other contexts too. It's basically me too. How could you know the exact words that were in my head? I thought I was the only person thinking these things. And I sat at my desk, you know, in my flat on my own, just with tears running down my face because I actually, you know, still very moving now because I realized I wasn't alone. That these crazy thoughts I was having were really normal. I just wasn't meeting the people. And then I found out that one in five people of my generation, one in five women of my generation, my age were, were childless. And I was like, well, where are they? Because I had the experience of not knowing any, you know, not in my family, not in my social circle, not in my colleagues, my acquaintances, in the public eye, no one. So I really felt intensely alone. And that, that is the experience for a lot of women, not all women. And those younger women who are coming up through in Gateway Women now, the kind of the older end of the millennials, 38, 39, they are, that many of them know lots of other women in this situation because it's becoming both voluntary childlessness, you know, being child-free and involuntary childlessness are becoming more common. And looking at the data, I, 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 you know, I mashed it up in my book. I think we're gonna see a big increase in both voluntary and involuntary childlessness coming up. So I started talking, the void started talking back 
I kept going and then I started creating the things that I needed for my healing that didn't exist. So I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a meetup? I created a meetup. Because I'd come out of a, quite a few years of being in 12-step programs, healing my codependency, I had a lot of experience of the power of peer-to-peer -peer healing. And I'd also discovered in those groups that I was quite good at holding space. So I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll get a group of us together, like a sort of 12-steppy thing. I don't need to be an expert. I just need to have an agenda, have a container, hold the thing safely, and let's see what happens. So that was my first group that lasted 10 weeks. I ran that group four times. I, I developed all of these resources, you know, in the, and that became the core of the Reignite Weekend, which is the, the program that I run, which has run I don't, nearly 50 times now. And that program became the core of, you know, my book, Living the Life Unexpected. I mean, I'm quite techie, you know, that background left over from being a tech girl all those well, back in the 80s and 90s. I, um, Google had just started their new groups function and I thought, oh, maybe we'll have an online group, see what happens. So I didn't want it on Facebook because Facebook is self-harm for childless women because it's not the place you want to be when everyone else you know is having kids. It really isn't. <laughs> yes, yeah. So it's really hard if you're grieving and literally everyone else in your social circle is procreating. It's very painful. So I started it on Google actually one Christmas, one family Christmas when I, I was in my room on my laptop, quote unquote, working. Um, <laughs> I just thought, hey, I'm just going to start a Google group. You know? And it was a huge success. And I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a social entrepreneur. Lots of the things I've tried haven't worked. But over a decade, enough of them have worked that now Gateway Women's reached 2 million women around the world. And, you know, I've given my TED talk. I'm sort of the most respect, I'm kind of the global thought leader. I've been called many things, the grand dame of childlessness, the patron saint of childlessness. But recently, um, um, Joby Tyson um, called me the Beyonce of childlessness, and I'm taking it. Take it. Where I'm going to keep that one. For <laughs> I love it. So talk to me specifically about the name Gateway Women. Well, it's a very good question because I, it was a real download. It was one of those moments. I, over the years, I've loved naming things. Lots of my friends have asked me to name businesses and stuff like that. I, I enjoy that part kind of marketing. And so I was trying to think of a name for this new blog and this new project. And literally, it was just Gateway. It came up as Gateway Pro Project Gateway. And I was like, yeah. And then it was like, Gateway Women. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And then kind of the first person, you know, the journalist or someone asked me, why Gateway? And I thought about it. And I thought, well, my entire life, I'm fascinated by thresholds. And I realized that whenever I was traveling around the world, particularly in Asia, travel, remember that? Um, I would always find myself in old temples in a dark interior, photographing an opening that looked out to the light. You know, I have so many pictures of these. Um, and which actually I've been told in my psychotherapy training, these are actually birth memories. I'm just fascinated by the light at the end of the birth canal. But so, I mean, what is birth if not a massive threshold? So I, when I worked as a psychotherapist, my training, uh, I worked for a couple of years in schools um, as the kind of school therapist. I, the, the group that I had the most instant connection with were adolescents. At one point in one quite rough school, they called me the teenage boy whisperer. 
because I used to get these kind of, you know, boys who were just about to be thrown out. I somehow was able to, to reach them and have powerful conversations because they were on such a threshold. They had one foot in childhood, one foot in adulthood. And I realize I've always been drawn to thresholds and gateway women, it's what is a gate? It's either something that is in your way that is preventing you from going where you want to go or it is something that opens you and you step into a new reality. And for me, becoming or not becoming a mother, uh, menopause, aging, and also the exit, death. These are the thresholds that I find just so juicy and interesting because we go through a transformation of consciousness when we cross them. And I just, I just love that. It's so good. I love it. And this is not a topic that is only a special interest topic because women carry this extra weight of responsibility, like you said in your book, to have all your ducks in a row, to have your career all mapped out and to have your children all birthed and your house all mortgaged and everything needs to be buttoned up by age 35. And if you can't, then you're a failure. I know. It is, it is unspeakable. And it's also, it's illogical. It's illogical. I mean, what has happened in the, in the last 50 years is that we've had the biggest, in, in the developed world, we'd have the biggest shift between the relationships between the sexes since the beginning of patriarchy 10,000 years ago, which is in one generation, my generation, we've had the introduction of the pill. Le so legalized and safe abortion, women's access to higher education, women's access to the professions, fertility treatments, all in one generation. It has totally changed the dating and mating landscape for women and men. We are still running alongside that, this very, very ancient kind of idea of, of how things need to be. But if you imagine women have entered a professional working world, which was built around the male template of fertility. So your wild oats in your twenties, Get your shit together in your 30s. Have your kids in your 40s and 50s. It works for men. But women have gone into that system and it doesn't work for female fertility. And we're not learning at, sc at school. They are still teaching, you know, that it's really easy to get pregnant. You know, don't get pregnant as a teenager, which is fantastic. Teenage pregnancies have really, really, you know, come down in all developed countries. But what they're not teaching is actually your fertility is finite, your eggs will age. Um, but maybe difficult as it may be, maybe 25 to 35 is the time to be having your family and then go to university and then start a career. If we're all gonna be working till we're 80, right? why do we have to try and get all of that done in the first 35 yeah. years? What's the it's rush? Madness. It's madness. It's holding anyone other than the standard that white men have paved the way for, it's holding that standard to everyone else. Because these issues are stru they're structural. You know, you know, racism, sexism, pronatalism, these, these are structural issues, but the way they're framed in the media and the, and the way women frame them for themselves, they see them as personal failures. Yeah. Actually, I need to improve myself to attract a mate. I need to do this or do that. And, and it's like, well, actually, no, because in the time that so many more women have been getting higher education and moving into the professions, there hasn't been a corresponding increase in the number of men their age doing it. So we have the same number of men in those professions, but there are now many more women who are looking to partner with the same men 
of a, uh, an equal or slightly higher socioeconomic or educational status. Because we still have this idea that women have to marry up, as if it's Jane Austen times. Jeez. You know? So there's all of these unconscious programs that are running and they're all in conflict. And at the end of it, you have a lot of women going, but I did everything right. Wow. I ticked all the boxes. What's going on? How come I've ended up on the kind of, well, you failed heap. No, you didn't. The system is structured against you. Society equates womanhood with motherhood. And if that box is not checked, they don't quite know how to put it into the matrix. And you don't really realize how much society equates womanhood with motherhood until you start to move through your 30s. It all looks like a kind of a big fun and laugh and games until then. And suddenly it's like people around you are getting married, having kids. You're like, you seem to be the one that isn't. You don't understand why. Nobody understands why. And then suddenly it's like it's the end of the game. It's like musical chairs. You're the one that's left without a partner. Or, and, and suddenly it's like you've done something wrong. And I don't think, I mean, when I got divorced at my late 30s and I started dating in my 40s, I didn't really understand, I didn't really see it coming, how people would view me as a single childless woman. I, you know, I, I, I thought that the status I carried was partly mine. I discovered that the status I had in society was because I had a partner. Once I became a single childless middle-aged woman, I was like social plankton. I mean, I, I mean, the only invite I would get would be for a dental check. <laughs> Jeez. It was like, it was like what, what happened? It's really, it's brutal. It, it, it's, it's brutal the way women are judged unless they fit into that box. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in some ways. I've always been, uh, I've always not fitted in, you know, um, as a kid. I, I've always been, I've always been slightly off center. Um, and... I think it, this was something I was able to inquire into, but I do, I grieved motherhood, not just because I grieved and loved the children I never met, mm. but also because I grieved the identity of motherhood. I grieved, I wanted to be finally be one of the normals. Wow. And I, without motherhood, I couldn't be one of the normals. I was always going to be Joey, one of those childless women, you know? Yeah. One of the deviants. One of the deviants. One of the deviants. Right. I think the importance of going through that emotion for you and then passing it on to others, I see such a need for compassion because it's such a needed but missing part of our collective getting together. And thank you for that because I, I really relate to that. I, I, my childlessness, the grief of childlessness, it, 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 it broke me, you know, broke my heart. Um, in such a profound way that I, I really wondered if I could survive it. But it also broke me open. And I feel so much more intensely now, so much compassion for all of those who become othered for something out of their choosing. I realized that, you know, what is it to be a refugee? What is it to be differently abled? What is it to be the non-dominant ethnicity in your culture? Suddenly I realized there were so many ways to have the experience I was having. And I also realized that although I'd had quite a tough life in many ways, I'd also had an incredibly privileged life. And this experience had woken me up and I was never gonna go back to sleep. And it has, 
childlessness for me, I think, has been the door that has brought me into something that we've been talking about, which is applicable to, to the human condition. You know, how do we deal with being different? How do we, how do we make a space for others who are different? How do we open our hearts? How do we heal our hearts? And childlessness is what brought me to that place. And I've seen through my work, those, those women who, who go deep with it, I see it, it's like a bit of a soul clean, you know? Wow. When you don't get what you want in life and when everyone then judges you for it, there comes a point when it takes you right down mm. to the base, your baseline wow. and you can see things more clearly. And from that point, with support, with compassion, with love, with others who get it, you can build yourself up again. So powerful. Jody, do you have something, an excerpt or anything you'd want to share or read? I want to read something just about the grief of childlessness. It's a, it's a passage I've, that people often quote from my book. It's called Grief is Good. In Western culture, we've become fairly hopeless at coping with grief, with loss. We fail to recognize its power, its meaning and its healing and run from it as if it were death itself. Yet grief is the emotional and psychological process that enables us to deal with loss. Avoiding it makes us emotionally stuck, unable to cope with life, unable to move forwards. Becoming aware of the possibility that we may not have children, that we may not have the family of our dreams is a heartbreaking loss. Unlike many of the other losses we may have experienced, the end of fertility or the possibility of bearing a biological child is an irrevocable and definite loss. It's a kind of psychological death and it's profound. Facing up to it changes us forever. What we and others often fail to realize is the depth and reach of our loss. That not only will we never have children, but we will never create our own family. We'll never get a chance to heal the wounds of our own childhood by doing things differently with our children. We'll never watch them grow up, never hold their hot little hands in our own, never throw children's birthday parties, never take that first day at school photo, never teach them to ride a bike. We'll never see them graduate, never see them possibly get married and have their own children. We'll never be grandmothers, never give the gift of grandchildren to our parents. We'll never be the mother of our partner's children and hold that precious place in their heart. We'll never stand shoulder to shoulder with our siblings and watch our children play together. We'll never be part of the community of mothers, never be considered a real woman in a society that equates motherhood with womanhood. We'll never be able to hope that someone will be there to support us with the practical and emotional challenges of growing old, let alone someone to take leave our treasured belongings to, visit our graves, or take our lifetime's learnings into the next generation. If you take the time to think about it all in one go, which is more than most of us are ever likely to do because of the breathtaking amount of pain involved, it's a testament to our strength that we're still standing at all. And yet, because the loss of our future children is an invisible loss, we often fail to recognize ourselves that what we are experiencing is grief and others don't seem to have a clue what depth of pain and distress we are in. Some women are in such pain that they find themselves having suicidal fantasies. I did. It's not that I wanted to die. I just didn't want to live the rest of my life with this level of hurt. If we miscarry, lose a baby or infant, 
fail to conceive or never have the opportunity to try for one, our loss can remain invisible to others. It's known as disenfranchised grief because it's a grief that our society does not recognize and which consequently many of us feel shame for experiencing if we allow ourselves to experience it at all. If we had lost a living family by some tragic event, we would never expect ourselves to get over it. Yet we and others expect those of us who are childless to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, count our blessings and get on with things. No wonder so many of us are struggling. The treatment we receive is not just neglectful, it's downright cruel. And sadly, knowing no better, many of us treat ourselves in exactly the same way. Mm. You talk about grief as a gift. Absolutely. How is the rest of the world able to open their hearts and receive that generous gift of grief? What does that look like? Wow, that's an extraordinary question. And that feels like, you know, wanting to define, I guess, my legacy, what I'm hoping for. I, I genuinely believe that grief is a missing ingredient in, in our culture. We see so many books, management books, self-help books, which are focused on change. Thing is, change even good change, even desired change, comes with a side order of loss. You cannot change something without letting go of something. And the emotion allows you to let go of something is grief. So we can't actually move forward in anything without grief, but everyone focuses on the bright, shiny stuff. But no one's looking at the shadow. And actually grief is the engine of change. It's actually the, it's the secret superpower of change because it allows you to process physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, what you're letting go of to make space for the new. The new world that we want to create, we have to grieve the old world. And there are a lot of people who are grieving the old world and feel the grief of the world. And that is actually the work of emotional warriors. As a culture, we have to grieve what we're letting go of in order to make space for the new. So that is the power of grief. And that's why I love it so much. And that's why I bang on about it so much. Is it gateway-women.com? All gateway women both will get there. But um, I'm standing on, and I'm on the next threshold now, which is I'm now on the threshold of becoming a conscious childless elder in a society Ooh. that has no positive words for older childless women at all. Just grandmother, that's the only word that's positive. The rest of them are insults. So I have another, I have accepted my next challenge. I love it. Yeah. Bang that drum as loud as you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. do it. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you found this insightful, please share with everyone that came to your mind as you listened. For more information on Jody's work, visit gateway-women.com. In addition, you can check out Jody's book, Living the Life Unexpected. How to Find Hope, Meaning, and a Fulfilling Future Without Children. Also, you can visit my website, knittedheart.com, to hear previous episodes, investigate further resources, and hear more about my ongoing work as a filmmaker. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends. This is the best way to spread the good word, which allows me to constantly broaden my reach with future episodes. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.